Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. This is Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, it's been a little while since we've chatted last. Uh, not much has happened. Just a uh, a few pre- a few congressional primaries, uh, a, a search warrant or raid of a former president's house. Uh, we solved inflation, I'm told, and probably a few other things. So, how are you? Well, I'm at peace in Ukraine. <laughs> we- yes, I mean, and I'm 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 very tranquil at the border, and I'm very pleased with the fact that the crime rate is going rapidly down, and that the United States is headed on a positive course. Now, I think, in effect, what happens is the summer has been a time in which problems have only multiplied, and the only question we have to figure out which of these problems do we want to attack, so that we could find some reasonable way to disagree. Well, let's start uh, with our favorite topic of disagreement, Trump. Uh, we're ah, recording yes, this him. just recording this just days, uh, maybe I guess a week or so uh, after the uh, the Justice Department, uh, the FBI executed a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago, and some call it the the execution of a search warrant. Some call it a raid. Do you have a preferred uh, term for what went down in Florida? Well, I don't like using terms like raid because what they do is they presuppose the conclusion as part of the basic description of the fact, just the way I don't like the fact that some people would say uh, January 6th, it's an insurrection, uh, leaving open the question of whether some lesser offense was involved in that case. I do have some reactions to it, and my reactions don't begin with the raid. Uh, in these particular cases, I begin with two things. One is I always worry about course of dealing, and there were a lot of extensive interactions between the uh, Trump team on the one hand and the FBI on the other. And so the question that one always wants to ask is whether or not they could have gotten everything they wanted uh, by simply requesting it and put off the raid. Uh, Trump has always announced that he was prepared to comply with any request that they had. And indeed, he had re- complied with requests that he cordon off the particular room and to lock it up. I don't like the emergency argument in this particular case because it turns out he's been in possession of these documents for 18 months and it follows that nothing much seems to have happened with them. So uh, generally speaking, I think it's probably better to use lesser means before you go to larger means. I think the difficulties are going to be compounded because of the unwillingness, perhaps justified, but perhaps not, of the FBI to refuse to reveal the information that's contained in its affidavit. And that information has to explain to me not only why they want the paper back, but why no lesser means of getting them would have been available. Uh, That's the first thing. The, The second thing is I do think, in effect, that the political atmospherics of this are very bad. Uh, my view is Mr. Garland has been something of a bust as an attorney general. He doesn't project any leadership qualities, and he seems to waffle all over the place when he's in public. And and so what happens is you ask yourself, is this the time when you want to have the first ever search on a president? And this is one of the things that troubles me, and I'd like to hear your reaction to it. Uh, maybe Trump has some documents that he should not have had. Other presidents have probably had them too. But the funny question is, are they going to try and say, well, we had to raid him? Because there was obstruction of justice. And then since he's no longer president, try to bring criminal charges based on obstruction, where the obstruction comes from the interaction between the FBI and the president. I would regard that as dirty pool in the extreme. Um, what happens with respect to any particular indictment? I mean, I would like to see the... Uh, 
uh, affidavits unsealed. I think that was the position of the Wall Street Journal this morning. And even if you can't let everything go out, redact the name of some of the witnesses and at least give us some sense of the substance. Uh, so I'm at this particular point, um, very dubitante of the way in which the government has proceeded. I have no opinion whatsoever about uh, what Trump has or has not done beyond what I've already said, and namely that it seems as though his willingness to comply with their various requests indicates that lesser means should have been used against him, at least at this juncture. You know, at the very beginning of the Trump administration, I wrote a piece for City Journal arguing that it was very, very important for the sake of, of not just the presidency in general, but for Trump's own administration to be very, very tough on ethical issues. Um, and and I, for that reason, I was always a, an advocate for the Mueller investigation since it was the Justice Department investigating its own administration. I think that's that's it was very good and important for a few reasons. I get much more squeamish when it's a subsequent administration investigating its predecessor. Uh, and and even more so when it's possibly a a, a once again presidential candidate. There's such such risk in the current any current administration using the power of its investigatory or, or law enforcement tools against uh, its political enemies. And so I, I come to this very, very wary. And in fact, near the end of the Trump administration, I, I wrote a piece for the Bulwark saying, you know, it would be a disaster to see a pattern of investigations uh, over and over again um, by Democrats and by Republicans of their political enemies. And, and I really urge against that. So I'm, I'm, I approach the Mar-a-Lago uh, incident warily, uh, and that's speaking as somebody who's, who's as any listener of this podcast uh, has, has seen by now, is skeptical, to say the least, of, of President Trump. So to far, say the com- least. Yeah, to say the least. Um, so far, I'm comfortable with what I've seen the Justice Department do. Um, I'd say based on... What we just know in public from President Trump's own statements and actions over the years and from, I think, pretty credible re- reporting about, including some recent reports, and maybe I saw this in the Washington Post or at NBC News, on on how the Trump White House was handling um, pre- public records all the way up to the very end. It's not hard for me to believe at all that the Trump White House was completely irresponsible on the way out the door and how it was managing either presidential records or or classified information. I actually see the passage of time since then sort of the opposite as, as you do. We've now, we're now 18 months away uh, or 18 months out of the, the Trump administration. And my guess is that in those 18 months, you've seen sort of a long course of discussions and probably negotiations between the federal government and, and uh, the now former president. Uh, the fact that the FBI is now coming in and seeking these last documents after that long of a wait, I don't see that as necessarily disproving the possibility of a, of an emergency or of significantly sensitive documents that needed to be obtained. Because even if there wasn't a risk that things were going to be misused in the next few days, or the next few weeks, after 18 months, if they've been trying to recover these for, for months, um, there could come a point where either the President Trump and former President Trump and his his colleagues either obstruction. I don't mean that in a legal sense. I just mean in the sense of being mm-hmm. slow, um, or just incompetence in delivering documents over in a timely way. 
could reach a point where the Justice Department has to act. I take a pretty, I think, a pretty good view of how uh, Attorney General Garland has carried himself as Attorney General. He's been pretty measured in his public statements, pretty measured in his actions. I think he's a great, great improvement on, say, say Eric Holder as Attorney General. One only can wonder what he would have done in, in this situation. Um, but so far, I think I'm comfortable with the, the 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 limited actions that the Justice Department has taken so far. Well, let me sort of say the following: I'm I do think that their unwillingness to disclose some of the grounds in question are uh, important. So there are two ways to think of these things. One is that there's some kind of classified information or top secret information. It is, I think, clear and people ought to understand that Trump does not have it within his power to declassify any documents uh, when he is president. A declassification, like everything else in the government, requires going through multiple stages in which other people have to sign on to the particular decision that he made. So any claim that they have been declassified would probably be false. And it would also be irrelevant if it turns out that the information that was declassified was still of extreme importance. But one of the things that's sort of troublesome about all of this is that a lot of the impulse for this comes not with respect to national security issues, but from NARA, the National Archives and Record Administration, which seems to want to get these particular documents snacked to put them in their collection. Um, you know, that's an important issue, I suppose, but it doesn't seem to rise to anything like what's going Going on here. And so until we get the sense as to why it is that there is some kind of a nuclear risk or security risk, um, I would be dubious of that claim. And remember, for all the craziness of Donald Trump, and you know, I'm, I'm on record of saying I didn't want him to be my president and asked him to resign, futilely, of course, in February of 2017, early February, within two weeks after he's in power. So this is not a defense of him. But I think the single most important thing to remember is that we have to be extremely careful to keep our reservations about Trump, his demeanor, his style, his fawning behavior, uh, some of his really bad characteristics, uh, separate from the question of whether or not there's impeachable conduct or criminality. And I think it's uh, kind of sad that I find very, very few people in this particular debate who will say, yes, I think Trump is a louse. I do not support him running for president in 2024. And I don't think that he should have been impeached. And I don't think he should be investigated in this fashion. And so it's the polarization that gets me very, very uneasy. And the problem about um, uh, uh, Garland is put in the following way. You used a word which is highly complimentary. You described him as measured. Uh, the word that has been used in other places has been indecisive. And that is, he really can't make up his mind. And it turns out when you have these kinds of delays, then the immediate question goes, who inside the administration is advising him has the whip hand on this? And it's always a sign of a weak leader uh, when you always think that there's somebody who's behind him who's pushing him in this direction or that. What you'd much rather do is to say, we think that he really took the bull by the horns and made the decision. And, and one just doesn't have that particular confidence in him. And so I think this is, is going to play out. I I do believe, however, that it's going to really polarize the electorate. And one consequence of this, and I'm curious what you think about it on the political front, is that Trump's position amongst the conservatives in this country has been solidified by this. And at this particular point, it would be impossible for any other Trump-like candidate to come up against him when he's faced with these charges. It would be regarded as kicking a man when he's down. I mean, I still hope and pray that Trump decides not to run so we could get a Republican who may have the same kind of so pro-market policies, which 
which Trump has from time to time and occasionally neglects. Uh, but um, I think, in effect, what's going to happen is if he declares that he's going to run um, after the elections this time in, in, in the midterm election, I don't think there's anybody around who's going to be able to stop him. And a reprise of the Trump-Biden election in 2024 will be a bigger disaster than it was in 2020. Well, Richard, I totally agree with your political sense here. Uh, clearly, this action by the Justice Department, Biden administration against former President Trump is going to increase, is going to improve Trump's own political fortunes. Uh, anybody who's thinking about getting into the primaries against President Trump, which he'll, he'll surely get into himself, will be seen implicitly as as aligned with President Trump's enemies uh, in, in the Biden administration and, and on the left. I think that's unavoidable. I think this probably makes it more likely that President Trump enters the race sooner, which will also freeze out would-be contenders. But the thing is, that's so obvious, I think, the fact that this would help President Trump politically, that I actually see that as a reason to actually put more trust in what the Justice Department did. Surely Merrick Garland doesn't want to do Donald Trump any political favors. Um, he has to know that this would have serious political blowback in a few ways. Um, and I would, I would assume that, that Merrick Garland is taking that step wary of or aware of the, of the consequences. Merrick Garland's conduct so far and his choices, I feel like you've put him in a position where he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, right? We're seeing um, problems with him delaying action, right? I, I said he's measured. Others say he's indecisive. Um, he's, he's maybe flip meandering yeah. or flip-flopping. Well, if he had jumped into this a year ago, surely that would have been seen as even more political, right? A, a, a hasty um, retaliation by the new administration against the just recently departed predecessor. If anything, again, I think that the amount of time that the Justice Department has taken here probably speaks in its favor, at least in terms of thinking, seeing this as good faith uh, law enforcement rather than bad faith politicization. Well, let me sort of comment on that. Um, I think the political calculations are more complicated. I think what this does is it helps Trump uh, in the Republican primary secure the nomination. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that Trump is the one Democrat, one Republican that the Democrats can beat. And so if they get him somewhat damaged in a presidential election, it's going to secure the position for the Democrats. I don't know what your estimation of this is, but I think the odds are less than even that Joe Biden will run another term. Um, I think he is generally regarded as completely ineffectual in, in, in virtually everything. He's very gaff prone on the one hand and highly self-righteous. He has the whole Trump, you know, the, the Hunter Biden things on his hell. And, you know, here's another point. Uh, the Biden stuff seems to be pretty serious in terms of what should be investigated. And yet it's clear that what's happening is that the Justice Department is slow walking that. And so the contrast, in effect, is going to expose the FBI. I mean, I'm surprised, not really, I suppose by the intensity of the opposition to this that you see on the sort of the intellectual right. Now, friends like Charles Lipson, very thoughtful guy, you know, he regards this as sort of the end of the FBI as a credible neutral agency in this point. And I mean, if it does lose the confidence of the United States on this stuff and on everything else, that's a far bigger blow than we would ever have to pay. I have to say, ever since Jim Comey has taken over that office, and perhaps even before, I've been very wary of the FBI 
of, of, of the FBI. One just thinks of the way in which Hillary Clinton was allowed all sorts of privileges when she was investigated. And not only did they not seize her records or even ask for them, they allowed her to cull the records to decide what was and was not relevant, uh, which is basically giving to the uh, person who is under investigation all the prerogatives that should be given to the investigator. And I do think that that contrast uh, will come up to bear again. I also think, and here we've always disagreed, I thought that the Mueller investigation was a farce from beginning to end. Uh, and in fact, I think he was disgraced by the end. The joke that people made about him, which I think was true, is, well, we know he didn't write the report. That is after his testimony before Congress. But we weren't sure that he never read it um, because all he said is it's in the report. And, and I do think that uh, given the fact that this is against a series of fairly strong evidence and situation, the steel Vassier, the Flynn situation, and the Biden situation in terms of the laptop and everything else, I don't think you could just look at this in isolation from all that stuff and say that it's quote unquote in good faith. And why is it that people don't give Garland the benefit of the doubt? I think it's because his public appearances make him appear weak and indecisive. And that's going to be true whether he's moving fast or moving too slow. It's an intangible sense that you don't have any confidence in the quality of the man to do this. Or I like to say he may have had a, been a fine judge. He was actually a pretty good judge um, under these circumstances. But the job description for an attorney general is rather different. I don't think he fits it. Do you think of Jeff Sessions? He was not a very good attorney general either, although he was a perfectly fine senator. So I'm a little bit more skeptical about all of this. And a lot is going to depend in the next weeks as to whether or not they decide to release this or whether or not they decide to make an indictment. And if there is going to be an indictment, I think that it would be, the political breakdown will be utterly enormous. And if will, I think, in my view, it may not change the composition of the Senate. But I think that uh, given the way in which there's so many precarious Democratic seats right now, uh, that it will give the Republicans a majority in the House, at which point all the investigations will be, as it were, the antithesis of January 6th. Just speaking broadly of people's attacks on the FBI right now, and I, I don't mean you specifically, you're not attacking them, but, <laughs> I hope not. but a lot of people on the, on the right are attacking the FBI. And they remind me a lot of the left's attacks on police and also, frankly, the left's attacks efforts right now to delegitimize the Supreme Court. I think, as you said a while ago, we live in a very polarized time. And I think oftentimes the criticism of these institutions reflects as much the political coalitions that are criticizing them um, than, than, than of the things that are being criticized. And surely I'm, I'm as much at fault for that kind of thing as, as anybody is, although like everybody, I try not to be. Um, but I'd say, I think so far the, the proof is, has, has been in the pudding. The, the Mueller report in the end, I thought was very, very credible. And, and again, to use the words uh, he's before measured, right? I think that when, you know, Attorney General Barr rolled out the report and pointed out that there wasn't enough there to prosecute on, I think he was basically right. And I think that was a, that was a testament to the final product of the Mueller report. And at this time, in, in this era, when the Justice Department is under constant political stress from all sides um, and from top to bottom, I'd say the best thing that it can do is just go about its work as credibly as possible, as transparently as possible, although that's a that's a big caveat there, and I'll get back to it in a second, and to try to document things as well as it possibly can, consistent with the the, the rules and traditions of the Justice Department. Obviously, when we get to, to something like this with President Trump, it becomes much, much more complicated because as far as I can tell, the FBI is not normally in the business of, of 
publicizing the affidavits that underlie search warrants. I might be wrong about that. I don't think I am. And I think there's a good reason why you wouldn't, uh, just as a matter of course, release that kind of information to the public, partly for the sake of the FBI's investigations, but also partly for the sake of people who are under investigation and not just President Trump here, but anybody else who might be collaterally related to these investigations. Revealing the search warrant might put a lot of other people in a very, very bad light. So I I think it's perfectly reasonable for the FBI to normally not release these affidavits. And so far, I haven't seen any compelling reason to release them here other than just the fact that it's Trump and he's the former president and things are different. But in general, things always seem to be different around Trump. The way he he carried himself as president, the way he conducted the presidency, the way he's dealt with law enforcement both before and since his presidency. And I, so I understand that sometimes the situation is genuinely different and the FBI, the Justice Department, whoever is obligated or ought to be obligated to uh, do things a little bit differently. But I just don't see that here yet with the search warrant affidavits. Well, I don't know whether the words normally and yet uh, mean that we're in agreement or in disagreement. Uh, the way I would want to put it is that um, this is a highly unique and distinctive situation. Uh, given what I've mentioned earlier about the time of this and the alternative of not having a raid, but simply asking for the document. And then if that fails, using that as a justification for more stern measures, um, I would see it. If I thought that there was a genuine security risk in this particular case, I would see it. But it seems as so the narrow issue is more important than the classified documents issue or the sensitive documents issue. So I do think that this is a very distinctive case. And I also think that one of the things that could be done is you issue some kind of redacted version of what went on, which, if you recall, is what uh, uh, Barr did, I believe, when it came to the Mueller report. I mean, you know, if you remember what was going on there, the Democrats were absolutely insistent that everything ought to be made public instantly, and, and Barr had an intermediate position. I think that's correct. And if that's the situation, that is what I'm inclined to believe ought to be done here. Uh, and I, my fear is I don't think they have very much uh, on Trump. I mean, it's not as though when he was in office that you could find that it was a systematic policy of impeachment with respect to his opponents. Um, indeed, I mean, if I was looking at the way in which the Biden, for example, negotiates with Iran, um, I regard that as a travesty in terms of the way in which he behaves, but I certainly don't think it's a criminal mistake or that we ought to investigate it. And so part of my view about this is I think that a lot of people were after Trump in office for stuff, which I did not think was impeachable, particularly in connection with the Zelensky affair. And indeed, I wonder to what extent the entire interaction and episode about impeachment in this country has influenced the willingness of somebody like Putin to go after the Ukrainians on the grounds that the United States may well mutualize itself. I don't regard that as a first level factor, but it may have been something which was added into the mix, although when you're dealing with a demon like Putin, it's extremely difficult to say. But all in all, at this particular point, um, I think, you know, I'm going to wait. I obviously can't do anything. I'm not going to scream for any particular action to come. But I do believe that in the end, this is going to create a heavy toll on the administration because the 
group that they have to be able to win is the independents that broke for him in fairly large numbers the last time around. And my guess is that that group is going to either go back to neutral or to some extent back to Republican candidate. I hope it's not Trump. I've never been in favor of his running for president, even though I support about three-fourths the policy he has and take very strong exception to the other quarter. I don't know about you, Adam, but I can't think of a single substantive policy of Biden that I would want to support on the merits. Can you? Well, I guess I'd have to think about that, Richard. Uh, he did create, uh, he did, he did put me on the Supreme Court Commission, and I, and I wholeheartedly support uh, that policy. I, I, I like the idea that you might get some uh, energy permitting reform out of the inflation, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. So, if that happens, I will like that policy. Um, mostly, the thing I've liked about President Biden, and it's pretty limited, but it's not nothing. There has been, I think, especially in and around the the Justice Department, something more like a return to normalcy after the the, the chaos of the of the last days of the Trump administration, and and that's not nothing either. I thought that that picking Merrick Garland as Attorney General was a pretty inspired choice, along the lines of of George W. Bush. Uh, putting Judge Mukasey in as attorney general in the Justice Department in the time when the Justice Department was facing a lot of criticism. Um, but no, beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of the Biden administration's policies. Yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, permitting could always be performed, and I don't think that's much. The energy policy, I think everything that is, that's going on there is in reverse. Um, the first question you want to ask about any major and comprehensive reform is what change do you think it will make? And if you then try to figure out the hijinks with respect to climate control measures, will this change temperatures in 50 years by more than a tenth of degree centigrade? I think the evidence is very much out on that, particularly since one of the things I feared and I feared for a very long time is anytime we cut back a little bit, the uh, Indians and the Chinese say, hey, if they're cutting back, we could expand a little bit more so that what happens is we get more of their energy pollution than we have our own. And one of the reasons why I don't like that is per unit of pollution, a unit of carbon dioxide, whatever you care to measure, output in the United States is probably 10 times higher than what it is in China. So the last thing I want to do is to cede influence and make the marginal player the least efficient player in the world. And on the pharmaceutical side, you know, we have an aging population for which we don't have any effective disease cures. And there can be a lot of problems there. So, I mean, I look at these policies and I think they're absolutely backwards, upside down and crazy. Um, and so, you know, let me put it here this way. I think if I were forced to choose between Trump and Biden, in 2024, I would vote more on the policy than I would on the man. Uh, I might say it's not a huge evidence, but I think there's very little to commend Biden in terms of his own personality. I think he's he's lost his mind a little bit. I think he's slowed down. I think he tends to be vindictive with respect to people, nasty in the way in which he deals with them, has a lot of shady dealings. But to me, the thing I vote on first is policies. And I think his policies are terrible. And Trump's policies are largely better, although some of them are terrible too, chiefly in the areas where he agrees with Biden on such things as international trade. Maybe we'll get lucky and neither of them will run. Um, uh, that That is my fervent hope, by the way. But, you know, I, I'd say without without getting into too many predictions about who's going to run and, and so on, uh, well, you said it's a choice between policy or personality. I just don't see it that way. I see it first and foremost as a choice over institutions. Um, and the political left is not blameless here when you see what they want to do to the Supreme Court. 
uh, when you see what they would do uh, with continued growth of the administrative state and the undermining of of the legislative part of our government. Um, I'm against all of those things too. But when it comes to Donald Trump, the first question for me is not what are his policies or what's his personality. It's is he a, a, a significant threat to constitutional institutions uh, and American uh, America's uh, social social cohesion? And uh, it's, it's hard for me to see him as anything but a threat to both of those things. Well, I think on the constitutional side, I mean, he's been in office for four years and you can't point to the kinds of things that he'd done, which would be terrible. On the social side, I basically think that there's a lot to be said. Interestingly enough, apart from some silly outbursts in his second campaign, I thought he ran a much more measured and intelligent campaign the second time around than the first. Um, if he hadn't listened to people like Giuliani telling him to act like a fool uh, when he was in his first debate with Biden, he may well have won this thing. But his ability to inflict harm upon himself is second to none. And he's a guy who alternately becomes bellicose on the one hand and self-pitying on the other hand, which is not an attractive set of characterizations. I agree with that. The Constitutional threats, frankly, I don't see them. Um, if anything, I think they're coming more from the sorts of investigations of Trump than of Trump's own behavior. So the thing I would always say is when Trump was faced with various kinds of problems, did he resort to prosecutions or removals? You know, Adam, that I represent a group of people who were bounced by um, Biden from their positions on advisory boards, and he just fired everybody. He was wrong on the law, and he was wrong on the tradition. And now when you try to get him in court, it's just a long haul to go through all the procedural hurdles to do it. But this was absolutely unprecedented and illegal behavior on his particular part. And so I regard him in some of his own ways as being a threat with respect to these kinds of institutions as well. Um, and in this case, not because of any abstract stuff, but because of these summary dismissals that he made of people. Uh, the basic point here is advisory committees are not executive branch operations. If they were executive branch operations, then it turns out the courts, the Congress could have no power of appointment. All of these advisory committees have people who have the power of appointment. That is the head of the, the Speaker of the House and the President pro tem of the Senate. And so the only way that these things are legitimate is they have no executive power. They're advisory, which is the design that was set up. And Biden just simply fired them all with one sentence letter saying, oh, if you don't leave by five, you're out of here by six. I mean, that to me is a real constitutional threat. And it's an, an attack on the stability of American institutions. He's never apologized for it. And if you look at the government papers, they don't even try to death justify it. What they do is they treat advisory committees as the same thing as district attorneys, all of whom routinely submit their resignation when there's a change in administration. So I regard Biden as a serious threat to the stability of this country. If you look at the way in which they're running the Defense Department and the vaccinations and the dismissal on that. It's very preemptory, very difficult to see them happening. And the woke nature of the institution is such that uh, getting people to sign up for the military now is much harder than it was before because there are a large portion of the population who think that they're not welcome because a woke culture basically says that every white person who joins the service has to apologize for his historical and personal identity. So I don't see Biden as being a guy who's spotless on the integrity issue, not by a long shot. And, you know, I don't even know whether he's better or worse than Trump. I don't like either of them particularly, uh, but on the policies, it's no contest. As bad as Trump is on some issues, Biden's that bad on every issue and even worse. Well, I definitely didn't like uh, Biden's handling of those advisory committees, as you mentioned, and in, in, in no small part, because some of my friends got swept up in that. 
Um, yeah, I do think it. Pales- That's why I'm suing him, by the way. Yeah, I, I do think it pales in comparison to say January sixth. And speaking of which, since we've kind of gone full Trump talk <laughs> on this one, why don't we uh, spend a little time possibly disagreeing over the uh, the January sixth committee in Congress? And again, we're recording this just days after uh, Liz Cheney lost her her primary fight, um, clearly because of her role in that committee. Now, Richard, let me just say to tee this up. I said a while ago that I'm very, very wary of of uh, one administration uh, investigating its predecessor or its its possible future opponent. Um, I, I don't have those compunctions about Congress investigating the president. Um, and, and so I've been pretty favorable towards what the January, how the January 6th committee has carried out its work so far. I think it's done a good job. The, the hearings, which hearing might be the wrong word for it because the, the members of Congress aren't really doing a whole lot of hearing. They're doing a lot of speaking, but the presentations, um, they're a little slick, but I think they've been effective and, and compelling and also have the virtue of being truthful in laying out some pretty hard facts for the American people in terms of what President Trump and his allies or cronies were trying to carry out in and around the, uh, the, the aftermath of the election heading towards the inauguration. So I think that they've done a, a good job. I'll be interested to see what kind of legislative reforms, if any, come out of this. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've been very, very uh, impressed by how the January 6th committee has, has done its work. And I'd even say, I, I think they've done better than I expected or feared. I worry that this would descend into something just starkly partisan. And it hasn't. I think that Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger have, have carried out their work very, 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 very well, and, and, and I respect them for it. Well, I have very mixed emotions to all of this. I mean, again, it's a one thing to investigate the president for impolitic behavior, another thing to investigate him for criminality. And on the impolitic behavior, I think the case against him is overwhelming. That's why his pettiness always comes there. On the criminality stuff, I, I think the case is a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, I've seen people give accounts on the other side saying, well, he said this, but he didn't say that. Uh, he said, go and fight for your rights, but do so peaceful and things of that sort. One of the things I think that we have to note about this is the reason I'm upset about the committee structure is that they did not use the normal situation in allowing the Republicans Republicans to pick their own members. Uh, what they did is they picked two Republican members who were basically Democrats. So it's a one-sided committee. I agree with you that much of the testimony that has been presented has appeared to be highly effective, um, but I'm a bit troubled by the fact that there was no cross-examination of any of this stuff. And whenever you have set pieces, they're much more powerful. This indeed is one of the risks that is going to be faced if you decide to run this thing through a prosecution. If you call these same people up there, uh, you're going to have to answer all sorts of anomalies about what's going on. Whom did you arrest or who did you not arrest? There's been talk, and I can't say whether it's true or not, that some of the people who are out there saying to raid the Capitol were in fact democratic plans. So it's not as though that everything was a false flag operation. Most of the people, they were not. But there may be one or two people who were, and if so, they should be prosecuted like everybody else, uh, but they've not been prosecuted. So, I mean, what happens is One has to be extremely careful about the effectiveness of a committee when the usual safeguards of cross-examination 
are not going to be in place, which they weren't in this particular situation. Uh, but if you ask me whether or not this added to the greater glory of Donald Trump, I think the answer is, of course not. Um, it was, to some extent, the fiasco from beginning to end. Um, he should have called people off instantly. Is that criminal? Probably not, I would think, under the circumstances. Was this an insurrection? I think it was probably not an insurrection. I'm pretty confident about that. I mean, were there people with weapons and so forth in the building? Building. I think that some of the statements that were made in the committee or by the committee afterwards have been somewhat hyperbolic with respect to the craziness that went on. It's also, I think, something to remember that at the same time that you're giving extremely long uh, sentences to people and in some cases just holding them in isolation because of the participation in this thing. And nobody, as far as I can tell, who is associated with the nonstop violence in Portland and Seattle has been subject to any criminal sanctions whatsoever, which again says, well, they may not be comparable cases. Uh, but it turns out the other cases are pretty darn severe, and they had actual violence for a prolonged period of time. And what Garland did is essentially let them all work. So, again, it's the same thing. The contrast between the treatment on the one side and the other side is something which diminishes the effectiveness or the persuasiveness of the January 6th commission. Uh, but if Trump had to do it over again, I would hope he would be behave better. I think it's an appalling situation. And as I said, you know, for political purposes, I regard it as something which is heavily, heavily probative against him running against. So I'm in this odd position of uh, sort of defending him against criminal charges, uh, but not defending him against political charges. And I, I think that's where I'm going to stay for the while on this thing. Um, I agree with you that some of the testimony was effective. Uh, but again, I don't judge it as effective as you might, because I think cross-examination by members of the committee who are hostile to the position is something that you need. Just think of the whole testimony against Kavanaugh, right, with Miss, Miss Ford, um, Wazy Ford. I mean, uh, she will never appear in public again on any of this, uh, because if you have a chance to give sustained um, cross-examination, she would not survive it. Cross-examination is an engine of truth. It's not the perfect engine. It's not the only engine, but you certainly don't want to run any kind of major investigation unless that's one of the tools and one of the structural features in the arsenal. It's not as though the witnesses, when they were giving their depositions, didn't have lawyers, right? They were all they were all lawyered up. They often were saying things that were critical of their own administration. Oftentimes, putting themselves so, in a in a in a bad light. So I I haven't seen anything that sort of detracts from from the 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 the, the reliability of their statements so far. But more to the point, Richard, one of the things I've I've liked about the January sixth committee is that. It's not mistaking itself for a criminal prosecution, right? They have at every turn rejected efforts to turn this into the a partnership with the Justice Department. In fact, at one point they were taking heat, the, the chairman of the committee was taking heat for not turning over material to the Justice Department. I think the worst thing that could happen to this investigation specifically, this congressional investigation and congressional oversight generally is that it gets too tangled up with law enforcement and becomes an adjunct to criminal investigations. They're just fundamentally different and they need to remain that way. And I've respected the committee for keeping that distance. And I've written previously elsewhere, I guess it was probably for commentary during the Mueller investigation for, for efforts by some to basically co coordinate and combine Congress's oversight and investigatory powers with the justice departments. That would be a, a total disaster. And I completely agree with that.
Uh, the difficulty is we can't say that it won't happen until we see whether or not there's a criminal prosecution. Mm-hmm. And then if the criminal prosecution tries to introduce some of the evidence that's been gathered in the J6 hearing or use it in order to get other investors that they admit, it may well be that the compromise will start to play place at that particular point in time. I, but as a matter of general principle, I think it's extremely important to keep that separation. Uh, I also think it's increasingly important when you run these investigations before there, you have a balanced committee. And so when the decision was made to simply reject, reject all of the Republicans that were opposed by the Republicans, that was a mistake. Maybe Miss Pelosi was right. I suspect she was and say, I don't want these five guys. I'll come back and take these two out and give me three others. That was not done. Yeah. I, so I don't, I remember it differently, or maybe the way you describe it at the very end is, is the way I remember it, that, that Kevin McCarthy proposed Five people, was it? And Pelosi said, well, we'll take three of them, but there's two of them in particular that we're not going to take. I don't, for what it's worth, I don't think she was unreasonable in, in, in that selection. Um, and then McCarthy pulled all of the, all of the members, leaving just, uh, McCarthy, uh, uh Cheney and, and Kinzinger mm-hmm. behind on that. I think at the end of the day, the question was, what was the job? What was the job that this committee was created to do? I think it was to investigate. Uh, the you know the mm-hmm. the assault on the Capitol on January sixth. I again speaking as somebody who thinks they've done a pretty good and measured job of it. I'm glad mm-hmm. that it hasn't become a, a a partisan circus. I think that Cheney and Kinzinger they've been they're obviously to say the least critics of Trump, but I think they yes, I think so. they've they've I think I think they've been totally credible and and reasonable in the way they've carried out these things. I'll tell you, Richard, when 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 Trump got the either the nomination or the election. I saw some of our friends on the right say that that in many ways it's it was a good thing uh, for the separation of powers that Trump happened to be the selection because he didn't come up through the normal Republican way. He didn't have the same ties to his party, and therefore Republicans in Congress would be less beholden to Trump personally. And you'd see a reinforcement of the separation of powers between Congress and the president instead of this alignment between a president and the members of his party in Congress. And obviously that didn't happen that way. Uh, Certainly did not. Nothing. I I think it's laughable to to have thought that at the time. And and now in the aftermath of an actual, um, whether you call it an insurrection, I call it an insurrection, but whether it's a a riot, an assault, whatever you want to call it, this, this, this trespasses. Yeah. Well, it's a lot more than trespassing. It wasn't like they just happened to cross a property line. Um, But this, this action against the Capitol in the midst of the electoral count, I think proved that we have the, the the separation of powers is at a low ebb, and to the extent that Republicans were wary of taking the January sixth investigation seriously, I don't think that's a I don't think that reflects poorly on the two Republicans who did take part. Well, look, I do not think that the Republicans behave particularly well on this either. And I think part of the problem is, as you said, is they're much too beholden to Trump. And I think the nature of this particular investigation only pushed that a little bit bit further. Uh, one of the things I'm also worried about is what's going to happen if the Republicans take over, as I think is likely the House of Representatives, and they decide to have some other kind of investigation going on. Uh, you mentioned earlier on that you were very uh, leery about the whole problem of uh, the criminality side of this thing. That is, you investigate me and punish my guy, I'm going to do the same thing to you. Yeah. 
all of this can take place with respect to these kinds of committees. And that itself is, I think, um, a very dangerous situation. I am not trying to say uh, that I found all the evidence that was presented by this committee irrelevant or unpersuasive. In fact, I agree with you. Much of it was quite persuasive and so forth. I think it would have had greater legitimacy if it had been able to survive, as I think much of it would have been able to survive, um, some degree of cross-examination by some other hostile forces. And so I think what happens is that uh, Cheney, I think, uh, you know, Wyoming, she's not going to win there. If somebody wants to think of this as a bellwether of the United States of how this is going to play out, I regard that as quite lunatic. I mean, she's in a state which is 80% Republican, and they all regarded her as engaging in an act of high treason. And uh, then when she starts to appeal for Democrats to cross over and to vote for her, it's all over. And what did she lose by more than two to one item? It was by quite a lot. I think 30 or 40 points. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised about that. I don't think it would have happened in other kinds of states. Anyhow, I mean, uh, as I think as we sort of wind all this stuff down, um, I would just make this last observation. Uh, the extent to which these activities, either in the legislative front or on the executive front, uh, are going to prove out, we still don't know the ultimate answer to this because we have yet to see the way in which these things are going to start to play out. And my guess is we probably won't know the answer in, in this thing, even in a kind of an approximate way before the uh, November elections, uh, which I agree with, not with enthusiasm, but as everything political these days with a certain degree of apprehension. On that happy note, I turn it back to you. <laughs> well, if Republicans retake the House, we'll definitely see investigations of the Biden administration and oversight. And that's a good thing um, with the separation of powers. At the end of the day, I think we have to judge these things, you know, not by the protagonists, but by the products and see what the oversight attempts to do and, and, and what it produces. You know, in thinking about what might Republicans do what my Democrats do, it reminds me of an old line from William F. Buckley. He used to say, uh, you know, there's a difference between people who shove little old ladies out of the way of the bus and people who shove little old ladies in front of the bus. They're not just all in the business of pushing around little old ladies. And, and I think that's ultimately how we need to think about oversight, that, yeah, Republicans are going to engage in some oversight and some of it's going to be retaliatory, just as Democrats, you know, their own oversight in a new administration oftentimes is, 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 is you know, trying to get their own punches in after their administration was previously uh, investigated or, or overseen. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm just going to focus on what this oversight actually produces and why, you know, why it was undertaken and, and, and what good it did, um, rather than just sort of chalk it all up to, well, everybody's going to investigate everybody. Well, on that happy note, huh. we should come back again soon and investigate each other. Yeah. Oh, great. Great. Well, <laughs> please uh, join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Investigations. Uh, as always, leave us a rating. And, and Did you, a you realize the title that you gave it? Uh, you know, I, I don't make mistakes around here, Richard. That one was intentional. That was intentional. Um, that was what I thought. Yeah. Uh, and well done, I might add. Well, thanks. And thanks, everybody, for, for joining us. Please join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.